according to Access Church. How's everybody doing today? Good, good. Hey, so glad you guys are here today. Uh, obviously, you guys, many of you know, we've had a big week at our house. Uh, Kaliana Rose was born Sunday, September 3rd. She was seven pounds, nine ounces. Yeah, I know. It's okay. It's okay. Seven pounds, nine ounces. We're so proud of Becca. Um, she did so great during uh, that whole process. And then also afterwards and all of all the things that she has to do and as a new mom. And so uh, we're just proud of her and we're excited to have Kaliana be part of our lives. I, I bought a t-shirt that says Papaw on the front and uh, that's what Becca said I should be called. I, I don't feel old enough to be a Papaw, but I, brought, I bought one and it's more of a workout shirt because when I'm working out next to somebody and I'm beating them, I want them to think, I'm getting beat by a papaw today, like, you know, like, I got to step it up, man, I want to be motivating to whoever that is, and so uh, I, I thought about getting one with one on the back so that when they see me going, you know, they'll be like, oh, I got to step it up, but uh, it's also been a big week for us because my brother Jonathan, who uh, all of many of you know, a uh, vital part of our church, uh, is pancreatic cancer, and he had the Whipple procedure, about a seven-hour a surgery this week on a Tuesday, and then went into the ICU and, and has begun the process of recovery. And immediately they had him up walking within the next day, just a little bit around the unit, three times that next day to try to get things going. And uh, he's been very alert and very aware and very uh, talkative as well. And uh, so we're just grateful for that he started the process of recovery and just pray that that cancer would not recur. This is his best shot other than the Lord. Uh, at uh, getting through this pancreatic cancer. So uh, we're praying for that this week. And I know that you all today, as you have different things that have gone on in your life, you have great joys. You also have some challenges. Well, listen, we're all in the same boat, all right? So let's just go to God in prayer as we get started today. God, we give you thanks for just watching over us every day. And, you know, for the great highs, the great celebrations, God, we're just thankful for them. And you know what, God, we're thankful for the times where it seems like things are a challenge, too, because in the middle of that, we grow, and, and, and we face life, and we face life with your support and your help, and, and it helps us grow to know you more. So we're thankful for those things, too. We're, we trust you in those. And so today, God, pray as we open your word and we just study story after story today that you would just encourage us and inspire us to do exactly what Jesus did and how he lived his life. And God, that's what we want to do. We won't do it perfectly. We want to do our best to be more and more like Christ. And we pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to talk to you at the, at the beginning of this about some of the rhythms of Jesus' life. And you see this very, very early in his ministry. If you read the Gospel of Mark, it begins not with his birth, but it begins right with the ministry of Jesus right at the very beginning of his ministry. And right in Mark chapter 1, you see what is going to be important to Jesus throughout his ministry. And one of the things he does right away is in Mark chapter 1 verse 12, you see that Jesus goes off by himself and he prays and he fasts for 40 days. No food at all. He just spends time with the Father. And that pattern of spending time, personal time with the Lord goes throughout his ministry. Uh, you'll see many times he'll get up early in the morning to pray. Early in the morning by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus got up to pray. When no one else was there and nobody else was awake, Jesus had personal time with the Father. And then in Mark chapter 1, verse 16, you see immediately he calls his disciples. 
And he establishes very early on that this is not a solo act, that it's in community with other people. He's in relationships. He's establishing the value of teamwork and relationships. And we see that all through his ministry. He gathers around him a group of people. He leads them and teaches them and motivates them and enjoys them and supports them. And and we see that that group of individuals, the 12 disciples in the upper room, that they grow together and they get to know one another They get on mission together, and that group ultimately grows to be about 120 people in the upper room. And so there is this group that he's in relationship with, and then we see that there is a smaller group within that, that he had this smaller group of individuals, Peter and James and John, and these were the three that were with Jesus literally on the mountaintop and in the valley. You see Jesus with Peter, James, and John in moments like the transfiguration. Where where really there is this transformative moment in the life of Jesus, and they get to be a part of it. But they also experienced some of the most difficult times. It was Peter, James, and John who were with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he is weeping and praying, and blood is coming out of his forehead. It's such an intense prayer, and he's about to suffer and die. And Peter, James, and John are invited into that moment. And then in Mark chapter 1, verse 21 that group, that larger group of individuals, they go on mission with Jesus, and we watch Jesus and his disciples heal people. And immediately, Jesus is, the Bible says he heals many people. All that in Mark chapter 1. Personal time with God. Time with a smaller group of individuals that he, that he really is enjoying, that intimate personal time. And then he has this moment, these moments with this larger group of people, the disciples, all the way up to the 120. And then they don't just stay in the upper room. They go out on the streets and they heal people. Now that is the pattern or the flow of Jesus' ministry throughout his entire ministry. And when we started Acts of Church, that was the flow we wanted to have. Because that's what Jesus did. That's what we wanted to do. And so we want to encourage you to have personal times alone with the Lord. And many of you do that. You have times of worship and and prayer and um, reading the scripture, and that's great. And we want you to be just like Jesus was in that, that he was up early and he was reading the scripture. He was knowing the Father. But we also would encourage you to have a group of two or three or four other people that you are with, that you are accountable to, that you are growing with, getting to know one another. Sometimes that's referred to around here as a core group, people that you're more intimate and personal with, and you know one another, you support one another in the highs like transfiguration moments, mountaintop moments, but also in the lows like the moments of Gethsemane. But then you have a larger group of people that you're on mission with. And those individuals, like the 12 to 120, where Jesus was in community, we have community groups where we want you to be a part of a larger group of other people where you're getting to know one another and you're reading the scripture and you're loving each other, but you're also on mission with each other. So here's the question I want to ask with all of that being the background. What would have happened if Jesus and the disciples just stayed in the upper room and never left? Not one of you today that's here and knows Christ, you would not know Christ because those individuals, if they had just stayed in that room, they never would have shared the gospel. They never would have been part of those healings. They never would have represented Christ to the world. And listen, I know we love the upper room. 
The upper room is like this. It's like group time. It is like we love each other. We encourage each other. It is support time. It is like this is what's going on in my life, and we are here with you, and we are for you, and we're going to read the scripture together, and we're going to worship together. But at what point will we say we've got to leave the upper room, and we have to be out on the street? We have to be willing to invite people in. We've done a really good job with personal relationships, but we have to do a really good job with sharing our faith with people. You know, the, the reality is there's a lot of statistics on this, but I, I think that most people in this room probably know Christ. And if you don't, maybe you're just curious or you're kind of checking it out for the first time. And we're glad you're here. But let's assume that most people in this room know Christ. And let's also assume that most people outside of this room do not know Christ. I mean, in our culture, things are changing so radically, and, and Christianity is on the decline in the United States. And what we're seeing is that most people outside of these walls don't know Christ. And, and, uh, and, and my point is that we have an opportunity to help those people know who Jesus is. Imagine for a moment that you had been diagnosed with cancer, and by the way, that'll be many of us, 38% of us will be diagnosed with cancer uh, by, the end, by the end of our lives. And, and let's say that that happens. And let's say that you are serious and you're on death's door. But somebody says, I've got this drink that I can give you. And if you drink it, you'll be completely cured of cancer. And, and you do indeed drink that. And, and sure enough, it works for you. And, and you take that. How selfish would it be to not take that drink and be able to say, hey, you've got to take this too. Because Cancer is a problem, and so we need to make sure that it's eradicated. You take this too. Well, we don't have that kind of a drink, but we do know that we have a solution to the sin problem. We have an antidote for a lack of joy. We have an antidote for discontentment. We have an antidote for our sins. We have an antidote that will allow us to go to heaven, and, and, and the, the world that is lost needs that. We truly believe that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And so we as a group, as an individuals, have to say we've got to get outside of the walls, we've got to get outside of the upper room, and we have to be willing to share that with people. Jesus one time said about himself that the Son of Man came to seek that which was lost and save them. Jesus loves every single person. Every person in this room, God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But not only you, he loves the whole world. And his desire is that the entire world would be saved. That's the compassion that we see in Jesus. Our mission as a church has always been that we would revolve the world around Jesus one life at a time. Revolve the whole world around Jesus. Is that possible? Well, it's only possible one relationship, one life at a time. Jesus cared about the ones in the world. Matthew chapter 18 tells us this. It says, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did, that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Jesus was about the one. He had this, these massive crowds that followed him, but when you really get down to it, Jesus was motivated by the one individual. He was in, in motivated by each and every life. When it came to healings, he didn't do drive-by healings. 
He didn't just wipe his hand over everything and go, your sins are all forgiven. Or, hey, everybody's healed. He did it one by one. Matthew 8 is a great example of that. Right after the feeding of the 5,000, it says, when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him, and a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. Nobody else wanted to touch him. Nobody else cared about him. Everybody else kept an arm's length away from this guy. But Jesus touched him. And, and he loved him. He cared for him. Given the opportunity, Jesus, even though he had these large crowds who followed him, he reached his hand out and he touched the man. And we see that pattern over and over in Jesus' life. Just after this encounter with the leper, Jesus went into Peter's house and his mother-in-law was there sick. And verse 15 says, he touched her hand. In verse 16, Matthew reports that many who were demon-possessed and sick were brought before him and he healed each one. In verse 32 of Matthew 18, when the demon-possessed man who everybody else avoided and feared came to Jesus, Jesus felt compassion on him and he restored him. When it comes to offering forgiveness, Jesus had compassion. He focused on the one. In, G in John chapter 4, Jesus came to the well in the middle of the day to get a drink, knowing that there would be a woman there who was an outcast of the city and had slept with many of the men in the city. And she, did, she was too embarrassed to be around people. But Jesus had compassion on her. And, and he, he gave her forgiveness. He offered her eternal life. He healed her soul. In John chapter 8, when the religious leaders drugged the woman caught in adultery before Jesus to stone to death, Jesus had compassion on her. And he actually condemned the accusers. He forgave her. He challenged her to go and sin no more. In Luke 19, so many people are around. A little short guy named Zacchaeus couldn't even see Jesus. And so he climbs up in a tree just to get a glimpse of him. But Jesus pays attention to this guy. And as Jesus walks by, he says, Zacchaeus, I see you. And guess what? I'm going to your house today. And, and he offers Zacchaeus forgiveness. Zacchaeus was changed forever. Here's my point. I could go on and on and on. But I want you to see today that Jesus was concerned about the lost. He was concerned about the ones. He was concerned about those who were not in the upper room. A very similar story to Matthew 18 is Luke 15. And all of Luke 15 is about things that are lost. But in the beginning of it, it says this, Now tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Notice who made this crowd up. It was Pharisees on one side, those who were teachers of the law, those who were judging people, other, other people. And then on the other side, there were tax collectors and sinners, people who most people condemn, most people put down. But here is Jesus spending time with those that were lost, spending time with the ones and the Pharisees didn't like it. And so Jesus said, look, if somebody's lost, they need to be found. I remember when I was in Israel in Bethlehem, we were overlooking the Judean hillside where 
the angels showed up and they celebrated the coming of the newborn king. And our tour guide took that moment to say, tell us a story that I will never forget, but it impacted me and it impacted my leadership. He said, if the shepherd had a wandering or a wayward sheep, then he would actually seek it out. He would find it, that young sheep, and he would break its leg so that the sheep would not be able to wander again. And then the shepherd would pick it up and carry it so that over the next six weeks, as the leg of that sheep healed, he would build an unbreakable bond with that sheep. And I love that story so much that I bought this figurine. And not only did I buy it for me, I bought it for other leaders in my life. Josh has one in his office. Because in what we do, as in the ministry and leadership, sometimes you might be compelled by the many. You might be compelled by teaching to larger groups or maybe leading larger groups. But we must never forget that it's the one that matters. It's the one person that matters. It's their needs. It's their problems. It's their challenges. It's their lostness that matters. That's how much Jesus cared about people. And that's how much we should care about people. And, and even if God has to occasionally break us in some way so that we might be able to be in relationship with him so that we wouldn't wander off, he's willing to do that so that we might have an unbreakable bond with the shepherd. The apostles followed his lead. Peter and John, when they encountered the blind beggar, said, silver and gold we don't have, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Paul and Silas met the Philippian jailer, and when he saw them worship, he was moved and ultimately converted, and he and his whole household were followed Jesus. Philip was on the road, and an Ethiopian eunuch had faith questions, and Philip stopped long enough to answer those questions, and then ultimately that guy decided to be baptized that day. Priscilla and Aquila had a friend named Apollos, who they taught more and more adequately how to know and to love the Lord. Here's my point, guys. We must care about the one, just as Jesus did. And here's an observation about this story in Luke 15. And that is, first of all, that just the, the sheep was lost. Jesus himself said, What has a man profited if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, Jesus identified that the greatest of all tragedies is for a man or a woman or a child created in the image of God to not come to know God, one for whom Christ has given his life, but to still be lost. In my ministry, I have preached a lot of funerals, um, and I've, I've seen the deceased placed in the most expensive of caskets, dressed in the finest of clothes, wearing jewelry worth thousands of dollars, surrounded by dozens of floral boat tributes, Yet none of these erases the greatest tragedies if that person is lost. Lost. We don't want to think about that. In fact, we don't usually talk about it. Lost. Spiritually dead. Eternally condemned. Separated from God. The object of righteous wrath. Lost. Forever. Jesus said one time, He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only begotten Son of God. Another time he said, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who has not obeyed the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And that's why we have to feel the urgency of this all the time. In every relationship, we have to be thinking 
about how do we help lead somebody to Christ? How do we help them know who this eternal Father is? And so, so many of my relationships, I, I try to think about that. At the gym, I'll just be coaching somebody, and we'll be talking about movements and movement standards. And then after the class, they'll say, hey, can we stay and talk for a few minutes? Yes. Why? Because you have to care about the one. You have to be willing to step out of your comfort zone. Uh, I, I've told you before about my friend Tony, and um, Tony is a guy that lives over by, uh, uh, off, of, um, off of 122 and right by the Catholic school there, and, and so I'm often by that direction, and so I'll just stop by Tony's house, knock on the door, and there he is. There's his dog, and we'll just talk about life, and, and this last couple weeks ago, he had a, had a surgery that he had to have for his back. It was a really pretty big surgery. He's a little bit fearful about it. I've talked to Tony many times about the Lord, and uh, he tells me, he says, Steve, me and God, we just ain't on speaking terms, and I'm like, okay, but one day, one day, Tony, you're going to come to know him. And, and I haven't had a whole lot of luck, but, you know, I just feel like maybe one day it's going to happen. I believe that. I brought Becca with me after church a couple weeks ago, and here she is really, really, really pregnant. And, and we're there with Tony, and Tony's about to have surgery. And he had another buddy with him, and, and uh, he's, he's Catholic. He didn't know how what to call me. And he was like, he kept calling me Reverend. I'm like, you don't have to call me Reverend, really. But he's like, hey, Reverend, tell Tony he needs the Lord. I'm like, I'm trying, you know. And he's like, because he needs him, because this surgery's serious, you know. You never know, Tony. He said, this might be your last day. He's creating fear in him. I'm like, hey, listen, it's all right. You know, just let's keep praying for you. And I I said, listen, we're going to pray for you right now, Tony. And that'd be all right. And we'll just say a prayer. And and then Becca breaks in. I wasn't getting anywhere, you know, but she goes, remember, she's real pregnant. She goes, Tony. I'm going to be at church next week, and you need to be there. And he suddenly goes from like me and God on speaking terms, he slumps down. He's like all humble now. He's like, okay. I mean, you can't say no to a pregnant lady, right? And, uh, and, and, and uh, then he has surgery, and obviously he's still in the nursing home right now, but, but I'm just going to put Becca back on him, all right, and, uh, and uh, bring her baby with her. And, but listen, why is that important to me? I have so many people in my life. And this is true, that, that I truly love, that they can be crass, they can be rough. I've got, I've got friends of all kinds of different people and all kinds of races and all kinds of experiences. And, and I, I genuinely want every single one of those people to come to the Lord. That we have to realize that people are lost without Christ. The, the shepherd risks everything to find the one. He left 99, and he went after the one. He left his livelihood. He left his security. He went to great lengths to find the sheep. Can I just ask you, what, what, what lengths are you willing to go to? What, what are you willing to do to help people that you know that are outside these walls know the Lord? There's rejoicing when somebody comes to faith in Christ. That's one of those principles we learn in this story is that when somebody does come to Christ, there's so much rejoicing. Just two weeks ago, we had a baptism out here, uh, three baptisms out in our, in our parking lot in the tank. And at Middletown, there were a few baptisms there too as we celebrated Baptism Day. And that always makes me emotional because it's that moment when there's somebody saying, I give my life to Christ. I, I want to just lay everything down before him. I want to die to my old self. I want to be raised to new life. And there's something so powerful in that moment because it's demonstrating to the world that this person loves Christ, wants a relationship, wants to be changed for eternity. And guys, that's what we're all about. 
And there's rejoicing when that happens because we realize how great God is and how much he's offered them hope and eternal life. And if you'd allow me for just a minute, take all of these principles and all of what we just learned and just give you some application. And that is, first of all, that when you, that, that if you're going to reach individuals in your life or the ones in your life, you have to start at home. In all three of the stories in Luke 15, something was lost, a sheep, a coin, and a boy. And that which was lost was deeply important to the one who lost it. Who is more important than those in our own family? In the midst of our own priorities, in the midst of the distractions of this world, in the midst of everything that we're involved in, the only thing that really matters is, what will they do with Jesus? And can you help them to get to know him? And so how you lead as a parent or a grandparent or aunt or uncle, how you represent Christ, how you talk about the church, you know, going home and saying, man, wasn't that great today? What did you learn in church today? Hey, can we talk about that? Or, hey, isn't it great to have a relationship with God? Or, hey, let's pray about this. I'm really sorry that you're having that hardship in your life right now. Can we just bring God into this conversation? If you do that, you'll begin to see that one day there'll be a time that they're ready to say yes to Christ. And parents, young parents, when that moment comes, be ready to hear your child. Be ready to say, I'm so happy that you're thinking about this. Nothing's more important than what you do with God and your relationship with him. Eternity depends on that. So you start at home, but also realize that reaching the ones in your life has to be a priority now. Not at the end of this series. We're calling this series Lost Cause because one of the things that we've realized as a church, and let's, I just, as we step back away from things and said, hey guys, can we just talk about where we are as a church? And when you look at it, I think we're doing pretty good on the rhythm of Jesus that comes to personal relationships. And what I mean by that is your personal relationship with God. Most of you, while many of us would say, yeah, we could do better at that, we're doing pretty good. I mean, we, we, you're reading the scripture, you're praying, you're taking time maybe out in nature, you're, maybe you're putting your headphones in, you're listening to worship, you're enjoying moments with the Lord personally. You're doing one of the rhythms of Jesus where he would get up in the morning and he would spend time with the Father, and that's great, you should keep that up. And then some of you are involved in relationship with two or three other people, kind of like Jesus had Peter, James, and John. And you're staying accountable with each other. And when there's a high, like a transfiguration moment, you're celebrating that. And they're the first people you call. And I can't believe that just happened. And can you believe the Bengals just won or whatever? And they're like, this is so great, you know, and this is so amazing. Or this is some celebratory thing in my life. Or, hey, we just had a grandbaby, et cetera. And you share that with this group of people because you love them. But you also share the hardships with them. Man, this is like the moments of Gethsemane. You're like, you're immediately calling them and saying, oh, oh man, this is really, really rough. And you need that. And many of you are doing that. And we encourage you to. And if you don't have a group like that, our core groups can help you do that as you get to know those people. But then you, you need a larger group of people that you're on mission with. And this is much like the 120 or the 12 to 120 in the upper room. And there they are worshiping the Lord together. And they're spending time. And Jesus is washing their feet. And they're having the Lord's Supper together. And that, that's amazing. And many of you are doing that. We want you to do that. But can I just speak to you for a minute? Because we're not doing very well at leaving the upper room. Can we just be honest about that? And too often in our community group settings, we are so good at going, hey, let's have prayer time together. Let's study a scripture together. Let's talk about how we are so good together or how challenged we are together. But when was the last time that in our community groups we said, our job is to get out of this room so that we can invite other people in? so that we can make a difference in this world. 
I mean, I would love to just see it, that our community groups would throw what we call Matthew parties. And one of the things we've been studying is this story of Matthew after he was led to accept Christ, and now he's a disciple of Jesus. But prior to that, his life, prior to Jesus, he was a tax collector, he was a sinner, and he had a bunch of other tax collector and sinner friends. And, and a lot of you might think, well, that makes it awkward if you're going to have all those people, and how are they going to connect with Jesus? And yet Matthew threw a party at his house. We learned this in the Gospels. He threw a big party with his tax collector and sinner friends, and he invited in Jesus and the disciples, and now they're all just intermingling with each other, and they're talking about whatever. They're enjoying each other. And, and, and that's why we're asking our community groups this year, would you take time to not just pray together and study the scripture together, and those things are so good and so healthy, but it, it's so, it feels so good to be together in the upper room, and you love those moments, but can you get outside of the upper room? Can you throw a party occasionally and say, hey guys, Halloween's coming up. Why don't we throw a block party at our block and why don't we invite our neighbors over? And in the process of those relationships, why don't we look for an opportunity to say, hey, we have a group that gets together every other week and we love to study together and we're learning about how to raise our kids and we're learning about a relationship with God. Would you want to be a part of that? Throw in a party. Invite people into your life. I'm not asking you to do something you, haven't, you aren't already doing. I mean, in other words, you're already on, on the go. Notice that Jesus and the disciples, when they left the upper room, what did they do? It was just as they were going. They were encountering people that need Jesus. And they're like, they heal this guy and take care of that individual and share love with that lady and appreciate somebody else over here and heal this person over here. So it's as they were going, they're getting to know people. They're loving on people, encouraging people. And I want you to do the same. This whole series is about how can we practically in our lives get out of the upper room. Luke 5 records for us the story of four individuals, four men who did everything they could to get their friend in front of Jesus. He was paralyzed. The place was crowded. They didn't care. They focused on the individual. They opened a hole in the ceiling. They dropped this individual in front of Jesus. And then Jesus took time to be compassionate and care for the one and he healed the man, and he took up his mat, and he walked out of that place. Jesus cared about the one, and I would just ask you, what are you willing to do to get your friends an audience with Jesus? What are you willing to do to see them be transformed? What are you willing to do in your community groups this year to move beyond the upper room and to make sure that you're inviting people in? Several years ago, I heard a story that I've actually told you before, but I think it's so good for this, um, for this sermon. Uh, John Souter tells about swimming in Deem Lake in southern Indiana, and he goes out, he's got his son on his uh, shoulders, and he's walking out into the lake, and suddenly, as he walks near the dock, he feels what he thinks is a body. He puts his son on the dock, hands him to somebody else, and begins to search frantically in the water, and he pulls up a little girl who'd been under the water. Not only her, but he immediately feels something else at his feet, and he picks up another little girl who was in the water as well. Two sisters were there under the water, five-year-old and nine-year-old sisters. He immediately began administering CPR. About that same time, somebody else says, 
where's the four-year-old brother? Where's their brother? And a panic struck that lake. And all the swimmers got out of the lake, and they suddenly formed a human chain, and they began to walk across that lake. Now, can you imagine what that would have been like? Trying to find that child under the water? A desperate search. Well, they did find him. He was over on the side, standing on the shore, watching everything that happened. He was there safe. Everything was fine. Thankfully to the Lord and to John Souter, the two girls survived and they came home from the hospital. But can you just picture yourself for a minute in that body of water being pulled out and yelled, we've got to do something, forming that human chain having that sense of urgency, that sense of responsibility as everybody begins to just take careful step after careful step to try to find that child that they believed was missing. And every step of the way, you're in a desperate search for the lost. When did we lose that kind of urgency for people that don't know the Lord? When did we lose that kind of desperation? When in our life did we ever just go past it and and at some point become so comfortable with the church and so comfortable with our community group and so much enjoying like, hey, good fellowship. Hey, it was great chips tonight. Hey, thanks for that dessert. Can I get that recipe? When did we forget that there is a world that desperately needs Christ? When did we forget that there are people outside of these walls that desperately need to know that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world? When did we lose that kind of spirit that said, we're going to walk arm in arm? And so this series is a practical series. It is a convicting series, not to guilt us into right things, but to motivate us because people are lost for eternity. We have got to be willing to join up with other people and say, we have got to invite people in. We've got to be willing to talk about Christ. We've got to be willing to share Christ with people. We've got to be willing to make him the subject of our conversations. And, and when we do, when people come to the Lord, there is a great celebration that happens. And you will be forever changed when you see somebody that you know come to faith in Christ and you were a part of that. And you will worship different and you will talk about Jesus different and you will be in your community group different. And this series is going to challenge you and encourage you to get out of the comfort zone and to once again begin to think about people in your life who so desperately need the hope of the world. God, we thank you today for Christ. We thank you today for your gift of forgiveness and salvation. It is extended to all. And so God, help us to move beyond the upper room. I know how much we enjoy the Lord's Supper. I know how much we enjoy the foot washing. I know how much we enjoy the the moments after Jesus' resurrection where you show up in these incredible worshipful moments where, where we're so motivated and moved by the fact that you love us and you died for us. But God, what would have happened if the disciples just stayed in the upper room and never got out? What would have happened if they were never willing to move beyond the comfort zone, start healing people, loving people. So God, help us to do the same. Help us to, in our community groups, not just pray about 
this challenge or that need 